hello, I'm David Warner. This is Toby's podcast. Welcome to Indefinable Magic. Stuff kind of about Doctor Who, but sometimes only very slightly. And on this occasion, a rough and ready stream of consciousness about someone special. Written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. This episode, good night, sweet prince. The actor David Warner. I can't remember what this was on, a documentary or a news report, maybe even 30 years in the TARDIS. Doesn't matter, don't write in. But a few Doctor Who luminaries were asked on my TV screen who they would choose to play the next Doctor Who should the series come back. Because, yes, this was certainly during that period where the show was in the doldrums of respectability and it even being associated with greatness made a forlorn fan's heart a flutter, if only just for a moment. And David Warner was someone I definitely equated with greatness. And my goodness, on that suggestion, suddenly it all made sense. David Warner was who that fine actor who knew his who, and indeed had been a who, Peter Davison, was nominating as his choice for the ideal Doctor Who. Warner was, though, an accomplished admired British thespian who seemed at the time unreachable to UK audiences because he was riding high in America, lending his brand of icy brilliance to villainous parts in movies and programmes across the pond. The actor David Warner, said Davison, and somehow the actor had a certain elegance about it, said by Davison and applied to Warner. I mean, every actor is the actor, but Warner was the definite article in a way that many thespians, even really good ones, are not. But come on, we'd never get him for who? He did Star Trek. Not only that, Star Trek at the movies, two in a row. And they knew a thing or two, those Star Trek movies, and getting a high-quality English Shakespearean player to lend ballast to your American spacefaring was a smart move. I remember thinking him rather underused in Star Trek V, because the image of him smoking a cigarette and exuding a crumpled disillusionment is the one thing about the movie that I truly remember. There was an air of frayed elegance and mournfulness about him amongst the science fiction shenanigans, even as he essayed a relatively small part in Star Trek's final frontier. But he conveyed nobility and failure, an apparently oxymoronic combination that Warner brought better to his parts than any other actor I can think of. His countenance had a lugubrious, doleful aspect that was mesmerising, suggesting an innate, almost painful intelligence lurking beneath an exterior that was vulnerable, but with flashes of danger. He got a different kind of showcase in Star Trek VI as Chancellor Gorkon, a part that needed someone of Warner's great presence and innate dignity, and a movie shot through with Shakespearean references. And having a great Shakespearean, in fact a paradigm-shifting Hamlet as a key cast member playing a key role, was hearteningly apposite. Indeed, the movie's subtitle 
the undiscovered country, comes from the most famous speech uttered by Warner's first great classical success story, Hamlet. For that's what he was hallowed for in our house, Shakespeare. Even though, to my regret, I never saw him do any on stage, he brought with him the kudos of having been the definitive, game-changing RSC Hamlet in the 1960s, and I knew that because my mum, not really a theatre-goer and certainly not a buff, had seen it. His student Dane, scruffy and melancholy, with Warner making the verse conversational and intimate, was a landmark performance in British theatre. I forget the details, but I think the legend went that even my undemonstrative and certainly not artsy grandad had seen it and been mightily impressed. My uncle, the only member of our family to work anywhere close to the entertainment industry and so therefore easily the coolest member of our clan, always talked about Warner on screen in things like Morgan, a suitable case for treatment, and The Ballad of Cable Hogue, which were the sorts of movies that could only be evoked by my cool uncle, and that he did so with admiration for Warner's contributions to both, always lent David another kind of credibility as a voguish counterpoint to his theatrical achievements. So here was an actor who did stuff that I watched and yet was spoken of with reverence by the generation above, and so therefore was definitely worth taking seriously. he was hard to avoid. He may well have appeared in seminal fare on stage and screen in the 60s, but growing up in the 80s, he seemed to be the bad guy de jour in all the exciting films that seemed to hove into view on screens, both big and small. Time Bandits, Tron, the hilarious The Man with Two Brains, showing that this exemplar of cold villainy or dignified humanity, even when playing a Klingon, was no slouch in the comedy department either. And he was everywhere. Those films I mentioned were TV highlights, event screenings, and seeing homegrown talent in something so groundbreaking as the technologically wizardous Tron, or facing up to one of Hollywood's biggest comic stars in The Man with Two Brains, well, that meant something. He's fantastic as Dr Necessitor in The Man with Two Brains, issuing deadpan lunacy of the highest order. The actor was in on the joke, uh, but the character most definitely wasn't. Brains was, if I remember correctly, the favourite film of Barry Norman, the only film critic who mattered when I was a boy, and that added to its luster. These international movies were a testimony to how brilliant a breeding ground our British boards were, and why I should definitely try to spend some time on them in the future, if only to encounter actors of Warner's ilk. But obviously not him, of course, not the man himself, he was lost to the heady heights of Hollywood. I got to stay up late and watch Sam Peckinpah's devastating almost masterpiece, Cross of Iron, a war film from the perspective of the downtrodden, cynical German trenches, and was riveted by Warner at his glassy-eyed best. Again, affirmation those days came from the admiration of others, and I remember my brother eulogising Warner's turn as the broken Captain Kiesel ravaged by alcohol, dysentery and pessimism, but saved in the end by his superior, James Mason, who sends him away from the battle lines before their inevitable destruction by incoming enemy forces. But there are better people, says Kiesel limply, unable to comprehend what Mason's Colonel Brandt sees, 
that flawed humanity will be needed when Germany recovers from a period where humanity of any kind has been in short supply. Warner, smoking again and drinking, conveys a shattered soul, but without any sense of self-pity. He does broken so well, never falling into the trap of being maudlin. There's an innate gloom when he plays these characters that nonetheless has a stoical dignity about it. It's also impossible to take your eyes off him. He makes melancholy poetic, and he sits in the sidecar of the motorbike that takes him to safety, exuding a kind of wretched gratitude, an apologetic lack of comprehension about the act that has saved him, and a resignation to the fact that someone has done something kinder than he can possibly conceive in this grim hellhole of death and stupidity and waste. But it's a kindness he may as well go along with, because the alternative is, well, death. It's a complex portrait of a complicated man, conveyed with the tiniest of moments. I was talking to a friend recently about Time After Time, which has a kind of Doctor Who vibe as it pitches Malcolm McDowell's H.G. Wells into the modern day, accompanied on his time travels by a murderous, sinister Jack the Ripper, played, of course, by Warner. I saw it once, nearly 40 years ago, but it's one of those pictures watched with family that I remember so well. I can remember who was in the room, it was a communal, mesmerising piece that grabbed us all and etched Warner forever in the walls of Haydock Towers as a villain to be feared. It was one of those films and performances you talked about as a group afterwards. God, he was good. And that's probably where Mum told me she saw his Hamlet. She told me several times since, and I'm not the jealous type, but I'm thrilled for her that she witnessed such a great event. Then there was The Omen talked of in hallowed tones by those old enough to stay up and watch it, like my older brothers. I, alas, was not. It was one of those films I felt like I'd seen long before I actually had, so described with the key scenes, generally gory deaths, that were relayed in great detail in the school playground or in hushed tones in front of a crackling fire by awed siblings. If I couldn't see it, well, then I would definitely read about it. And, of course, serious writers pointed out that the harrowing effects of the extremely memorable film were emphasised by a quality cast. The priest who got impaled was a haunted Patrick Troughton. Doctor Who, no less, yay! And the doomed photographer was the superb David Warner, who would never be in Doctor Who. He was way too famous by now, but, hey, he was in a film with a Doctor Who, and that was kind of good enough for me. When I finally did see The Omen, even though I knew what was coming... I knew what was going to happen to Warner's Jennings. I still couldn't quite believe it. So compelling and important a figure does he make himself, which makes his ultimate decapitation extraordinary for more than just visceral reasons. But there was something about Warner's screen presence that suggested if something awful hadn't already happened to him, well, then it was about to. He was indefinably tragic. Straw dogs... Sam Peckinpah's controversial, violent masterpiece, as relevant now as then, about how liberal sensibilities can be stirred into mindless violence if confronted by the right stimuli, has an uncredited turn from Warner. Apparently, it was not possible to get insurance as he'd fallen off a balcony and hurt his legs in the sort of event 
actors of his generation seemed to get up to quite a lot, which only added to their slight air of danger and unpredictability. And so he limps his way through that film, the production of which seemed to embody the dangerous masculinity the movie itself seemed to be bottling. T.P. McKenna's arm is in a sling because he broke it whilst partying. Director Peckinpah caught pneumonia whilst carousing with that other roguish bacchanalian Ken Hutchison. And Warner is a bent, shambling figure, acting as a kind of conduit between the simmering macho violence embodied by Hutchinson and Del Henny and the fragile, damaged core of the more vulnerable male creatures less able to handle their dangerous, primal potentialities. Warner's Henry Niles is essentially the victim of the piece, the village simpleton protected by liberal Dustin Hoffman from the alpha males drunk on their own red-bloodedness. Except Niles is a murderer, albeit an accidental one, and probably a paedophile. But in Warner's hands he is pathetic and innocent, but also probably dangerous. A multifaceted characterization in a movie that seems to glorify and be sickened by male violence concurrently and that only an actor like him could pull off. And of course, he did all of this without seeming to do anything. That's what made him such an extraordinary screen actor. His face barely changed, and yet he conveyed so much. Not just emotion, almost metaphysical levels of despair or evil could emanate from that inscrutable mask of his. That languid demeanour was a doorway to the soul. Warner's characters even when flawed, had that most terrible thing. Knowledge of our flaws, which perhaps more alpha male protagonists would be less troubled by. There was always something broken about Warner. A walking, yes, sometimes hobbling example of how insight doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. And empathy comes with a high cost. A breakthrough moment for young me was being taken by a posh girlfriend's family to see the seagull the Royal Shakespeare Company. Prior to that, Chekhov, for me, had been a likeable character in the aforementioned Star Trek franchise, and a playwright I'd never read any of, who was probably worthy and turgid and dull and hard work. So I was amazed at how funny and touching and human this production was, gilded with superb performances from the likes of Simon Russell Beale as Constantine, a part I was later unsurprised to find Warner had excelled in, being the ultimate example of the torture of the artist as a young man. Roger Allen and Susan Fleetwood, never mind Bilal and the stage Doctor Who Trevor Martin a bit further down the cast list. And so I quickly fell in love with Chekhov, who seemed made to measure for actors who wore emotions on their sleeve without ever overdoing them, who found the humorous and bittersweet within that ridiculous farrago of contradictions that is the human condition. So thank you, BBC Two, for, around that time, doing a studio production of Uncle Vanya with a cast to die for. Ian Bannon, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio from America, Roger Hammond, and, as the two leads, Astrov and Vanya, my two favourite actors of all time, Ian Holm and David Warner. Regret, the sense that life has passed him by, an element of self-sabotage, the part of Vanya could have been created for Warner, and he excels, as does Ian Holm. The pair of them, exemplars of peeling away psychological layers and augmenting them with 
subtlety and the often unspoken inherent pain at the heart of human existence. There's a wounded dignity to Vanya, even when he's angry, assassinating the character and later uselessly attempting literal assassination of Bannon's Sobriakov. There's a vulnerability to this tragicomic underachiever. It's like the human condition has stabbed him in the guts and he spent his entire adult life bleeding out. It was easy to have Warner as a favourite actor during my formative years. He was, after all, in the biggest film of all time when I was at university, playing a vital role in the mega-hit Titanic, chasing Leonardo DiCaprio through the vessel as it took its historic plunge. He's a prime cut of human villainy, there to show cruelty by design rather than fate and <clears throat> design flaw as a counterpoint to the cold brutality of the sea and of the metal carapace that plunges beneath it with far too many people still on board. It's the sort of performance Warner could do in his sleep, having long since proved himself as the go-to villain in certain Hollywood films and TV series. The British Thespis cut-class bad guy is now something of a cliché, but it's one built on foundations laid by Warner and his kind. And of course, the best villains are those who don't need to exert their power. And Warner always gave good villain. I was going through a 1984 phase. In fact, we were doing a production of it at university when he gave his Space Age O'Brien to Captain Picard's Winston Smith when he played a Cardassian interrogator in the Next Generation's two-parter Chain of Command. Sure, it wore its primary influence on its sleeve, Instead of Orwell's four fingers, Warner's Gull Madrid showed Patrick Stewart's Jean-Luc Picard four lights and convinced him that there were five. Derivative, perhaps, but who cares when you have two mighty British actors in popular and high-quality American science fiction being effortlessly brilliant to a mass audience. I mean, I say effortlessly. That's how Warner made it look. He once said he'd never want to teach acting, because he did it all by instinct. Well, frankly, that's wizardry. That's alchemy. That's every metaphor you'd care to use to illustrate the kind of acting that you can never deconstruct into constituent parts, because it has a certain something only very special performers can do. It's indefinable magic, to be perfectly honest with you. And that magic lent itself equally well to comedy, his villainous turns in Time Bandits and The Man with Two Brains showed that whilst channelling the very same things that made him plausibly scary and serious fare, he could also be a genuine threat, yet let the audience know that there was a comic, absurd edge to all of this cruelty and grandstanding. His evil, and that's what he was playing, evil itself, and there was no one better to do it, in Time Bandits, was played deadly straight, yet there's a sprinkle of the ridiculous about his terrifying edges that is killingly funny without Warner ever totally sending up his important function of being the biggest genuine threat of the piece. There's a fine line between good and evil, comedy and tragedy, and indeed between horror and ridiculousness, and it takes an expert to navigate that line with such deft precision. I could also flatter myself 
that even though I was obsessed with Doctor Who and could turn any conversation round to it with very little effort, that Warner, my favourite actor, was unsullied by my obsession. And that's the thing about self-loathing. It means the thing you love is automatically tainted by your own association with it. He was one of the great doctors that never was. Someone far too good for the show, yet possessive of all the mercurial qualities that would make him a perfect Time Lord. Watchable, offbeat, but with depth. And that kind of timeless weariness that could have been etched into his soul in Gallifreyan screed at the very dawn of existence. We wouldn't need any heavy backstory to suggest that this Doctor had been emotionally buffeted by the cruelty of the time winds. You'd only have to look into his eyes. Careful of those eyes, though. You might fall in. It would be wrong to say that when he was announced as an alternative Doctor in their brilliant Unbound series, that Big Finish finally got credence in my eye. That had actually happened much earlier, and again from an actor unsullied by association with my favourite show. When James Bolam signed up for an early audio adventure, I thought, oh, good people without any inbuilt loyalty to Doctor Who are taking this seriously. I'm having that. But even with that unlikeliest of lads joining the fray, I couldn't have imagined that not only would David Warner add his name to the increasingly illustrious roster of those joining the Finnish lineup, but he was going to be in a series which imagined different versions of the main character himself, and that he'd be playing the Doctor. What? Amazing! Unbelievable! Such stuff as dreams are made on. And so I was pleased to allow Sympathy for the Devil to introduce itself, a story in which we were blessed with Warner giving us his sideways doctor and proving that he could convey all those weapons in his arsenal. Wistfulness, cynicism, dramatic heft and an aptitude for science fiction dialogue, even without us being able to see that face of his. And so began a long association for him with the show on audio, conferring his greatness onto my programme in various incarnations, he was unbound, he met Jago and Lightfoot and Bernice Summerfield, and he was in the animation Dreamland. Yes, I was a giant bug in that one, he observed dryly. So when I got an email that said, We're doing a series of Tom Baker audios and there's a pair of recurring villains. We'd like you to be one of them and the other will be David Warner. Remains the best email I have ever and will ever have. Uh, although, to be fair and to clarify, David Warner is the villain, and I'm very much his sidekick, but I don't care. I'd have been his shoeshine boy and paid for the privilege. But actually, that wasn't the first time we'd met. I was doing another job for Big Finish some time prior to this, a non-Doctor Who one, and he came to do a little uncredited cameo at the end. He was playing God, Natch, and who else would they possibly get? The director, his partner, Lisa Bauman, one of the nicest women in the world and a fabulous judge of actors and people and much else to do with the world of drama, had got him to come in at the end of the day. She had also, and this is Lisa to a T, primed David that I'd gushingly let slip to her during one of our conversations that he was my favourite actor 
and that I'd watched loads of his performances over and over, and I couldn't believe Big Finish had got him, and my goodness, wasn't it great to hear him play Doctor Who, and isn't it just amazing, and what a presence, what a gifted actor, and what a legend he was. Yeah, she'd probably translated it into something less gushing and more sensible. Uh, as a geek who likes some of your films, be nice to him and he might not bore you to death before the day is out, or some such. Something much more sensible than my fanish dribble. So, anyway, he knew. Oh, yes, he knew. Because when he came in, not at all like the Prince of the RSC or the General of the Universe or God, but in light jeans and a skewiff rugby shirt, tall and rangy and without a hint of any grandness, we made small talk until he patted the space on the sofa next to him. I know you have questions, that Pat said. Remember, this was an actor who could convey everything with the most minimal of gestures or expressions. I know you have questions, and you're probably a bit daunted, and I don't mind you asking them, so sit down here next to me and fire away. And so out it came. Oh, I knew Delhenia bits, draw dogs, look like a unique set of boiling energy. I love you in Cross of Iron. That final scene between you and James Mason is amazing. Blah, blah, blah. And he answered my queries with self-deprecation and insight and without ever lording it over me. Some actors use the deference of others as a weapon, or at least something to build themselves up within the room. Warner had more reason than most to either stare through a junior colleague, make a cuppa, do his business and bugger off, or to grandstand and make it all about him. But he did neither. He indulged without patronising. He engaged without going through the motions. We talked of him working with an unknown Bob Dylan. I listened as he mourned the unfulfilled potential of Nicol Williamson, another mercurial actor of vulnerability and simmering volatility, but perhaps one less in control of his precious gifts than David was, and of improvising those scenes with Hoffman and Mason in the Peckinpah productions, which, by the sound of it, had madness in greater supply than they did method. First-hand recollections and observations that no one and nothing will ever be able to take away from lucky old me. So I already knew him a little, when I came to be the Doric to his Cuthbert, his Sancho Panza, or the Fibuli to his captain, the Kent to his Lear. Well, maybe not. Maybe the Osric to his Hamlet at a push. But whatever, I walked in his shadow. I nestled next to him on the cast list. I shared scenes with my acting hero and my childhood hero, Tom Baker's doctor, both at the same time. The big Finnish people, in this case David Richardson, someone else, was shown great unspoken kindness when a dribbling fanboy is trying to comport himself like a professional actor, ensured that there were photo shoots that included ones of just me and Tom Baker and just me and David Warner. The production material probably didn't really need those pictures, but David Richardson knew what he was doing and I knew what he was doing. Toby would like a photo with his two heroes, but he's never going to have the courage to ask for one. So, let's just pretend we need one or two. Just stand there, guys. Let's get a handful. Crash, bang, wallop. What a picture. It's a moment of kindness I will always remember, and of the type that we need to sometimes remind ourselves when the worlds of Doctor Who and show business are reported as hotbeds of gossip and backstabbing and narcissism. Actually, most of the time, they're not. And I suspect 
David Richardson doesn't even remember doing that. But I haven't forgotten. Another reminder. A reminder that even if you throw what you think is a tiny pebble into the well of kindness, for the recipients, it resounds. David Warner and I also talked about psoriasis, the crippling skin condition that has blighted us both over the years. I later discovered that Gregory Peck had remembered David's struggles with this condition that causes both physical pain and mental anguish that you'll never quite understand until you're in its grip and offered to pay for him to receive special treatment for it in the States. Many years later, David paid that kindness forward. When I was in hospital, covered head to toe in that debilitating canker and perhaps at my lowest ebb, David sent me an extremely sweet message words of comfort and sympathy that, frankly, winded me with their kindness. Some years later, when I did a sponsored run to raise money for the Psoriasis Association, he sent me a cheque that dwarfed all of the other very kind and generous donations I had had by some considerable margin. I was lost for words and spurred to run even faster and ultimately raised 20 times more than I had expected or even dared to imagine. And so, over time, I found myself exchanging messages now and again with David, sometimes passing on hellos from mutual friends I'd worked with. Peter Vaughan sends his regards. Sometimes David would point me in someone's direction. The marvellous Paul Joyce Who's Round interviews were facilitated by David introducing us. And we were Facebook friends. How ridiculous does that sound? A giant of British theatre, a cinema icon, a classical actor with cult credentials, revered and loved by serious critics and populist consumers alike, dropping me a line on stupid old social media. But, you know, I was just one of many actors who briefly shared his orbit. I'm sure our encounters registered far more with me than they did with him. But that's not the point. He had a gift for making you feel special, but without ever being grand himself. And actually, do you know what? If you're a boy from the countryside, doing a job you never dreamed you'd get the opportunity to do, sharing scenes with a man who was in some of the most memorable stuff you watched as a kid, in a profession where insecurities and disappointments come a-calling with tedious regularity, those moments, sharing the spotlight with someone so good, such an important member of the profession, well, they enable you to show imposter syndrome to the door, if only for an afternoon, here and there. I think perhaps the most remarkable thing is that I don't have any grand stories of mercurial disposition or thespish hijinks. My main impression of David was that he was a nice bloke, dryly funny for sure, self-deprecating, astonishingly unambitious, but for an actor so in touch with the fragile nature of humanity, its flaws writ large on his doleful countenance, who performed with utter empathy and no self-indulgence, you might expect a certain distance, as though he inhabited another realm. So often in this business we excuse genius, and he was a genius, look at some of that screen acting, for its bad behaviour. We expect our great artists to be tetchy, or aloof, or dismissive, or grand, or difficult, or in need of managing. I never saw him be any of those things. That such perceptive, special screen work, such precise psychological insight and conveyance could come from someone so ordinary, and I don't mean that pejoratively either, 
in an industry and environment where standing out and being troublesome is given far too much currency, far more than it should be. Here was someone who just got on with the job. A classical actor of the highest order, who was happy to appear in genre fair and had none of the disdain for its denizens and fans that many media commentators often do. I haven't even mentioned his on-screen appearance in Doctor Who. I suppose it was such a long time coming that there's something so, well, I know, Doctor Who-ish about the fact that the mighty David Warner, the best Doctor we never had, although yes, we did have him, but not as far as the general public are concerned, should pop up in the show, and it wasn't in an anniversary special. It wasn't playing God or the Doctor. It wasn't headline news. He was just there, being delightful as a woolly-hatted scientist quoting Ultravox in a submarine. But I don't care. Do you know, I, I was going to say, I almost didn't mention his Doctor Who work in this, because he was so much more than that, and yet, that would have been wrong. Forget any suggestion, as some have made, that doing genre stuff is somehow an aberration amongst the Falstaffs and the Leers, that his forays into the fantastical were somehow less important than his stage work or his trailblazing films. What is it about an actor's career that it somehow has to be entirely high-end fare, and if it isn't, then those entries on the CV that aren't worthy are mentioned as unfortunate asides. I'm not sure who gets to decide this. A teacher? They're allowed to bring in a board game every now and again. A footballer is allowed to do a charity match or a testimonial. A politician is allowed to present a light-hearted radio show. But an actor, somehow, he has to remain pure. And who judges what is important anyway? I love classical theatre with all my heart. And David Warner's place in our cultural history as a game-changing Dane is undeniable. But that should not taint the science fiction fans love for their favourite shows. And there are Who fans, Trekkies and Twin Peaks aficionados whose appreciation for their favourites are as pure and heartfelt and, yes, life-changing as any powerful piece of theatre can be. And it's a purer love than, say, the approval of the artistic elite for the highbrow, which always carries with it a certain sense of patronage and, a, and, it, and it runs the risk of being elitist. Not so the keen faithfulness of the genre aficionado. And David himself loved Big Finish. Of course he did. He got good scripts, great parts, and he worked with some fantastic actors. And some who machine-gunned questions at him like a divvy that he nonetheless endured with the patience of a saint. He never gave the impression that he was slumming it because he didn't have that attitude. And I know from talking to him that he didn't take all the work that he was offered he did what he wanted to do, and he wanted to do Big Finish. And he was too classy to be dismissive of something that he was taking part in, or to ever give it anything other than his best. No one can plan an acting career, especially if, like David, you're refreshingly free of aspiration. But there were several examples of a pleasing symmetry to his. Having played Henry VI in the landmark, ambitious, RSC Wars of the Roses cycle in the 60s, it was only appropriate that he should return to the company when they did another epic string of plays 
the history cycle, from Richard II to Richard III, taking in the Henry IVs, in which Warner, an actor who you knew had heard the chimes at midnight, gave his false staff. When he returned to the UK, our televisions benefited from his presence, notably his touching portrayal of the lead character's ailing father in Wallander, bringing him face to face with Kenneth Branagh, and so uniting two successive generations' definitive Hamlets. And, actually, sorry, Doctor Who again. But take a look at that clip online of him squaring up to John Hurt in the 1974 film Little Malcolm and his struggle against the eunuchs. Two incomparable actors making a pernickety squabble about the hue and weft of a corduroy jacket into something that is so much more. Hurt or bruised attitude, Warner affronted pedantry, closed up in a duffelcoat carapace. That those two singular talents both spent some of their late careers gleefully embracing my silly sci-fi show, each getting to put their mark on an extracurricular version of the show's main character, makes me love them both and love the show even more. Something I thought impossible. And listen, there will be better, less scattergun and certainly properly researched and definitive tributes to David Warner that place him within the cultural pantheon and give proper perspective to those performances, particularly on film in the 1960s, the ones that captured the zeitgeist of that specific, artistically groundbreaking period of time. But this was never intended to be that. This is a series of personal memories and observations. We all have those about the great actors who've made their way into our homes to transport us far and wide. And David Warner, well, he transported us further than most. And I was lucky enough to have met him. It's sad when we lose someone, especially someone so well-liked and hugely admired who gave us a lot of high-quality entertainment in things that we like. But sadness reminds us of our humanity. It's hard to bear, and yet curiously life-affirming at the same time. And if ever there was an actor who reminded us of that, whose screen presence emphasised the inherent poetry of suffering the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, of embracing the melancholy and making it so strangely beautiful, then it was David Warner. We shall not see his like again. Flights of angels, David. Flights of angels. David Warner. The actor. David Warner. For sure. Thank you for listening to Indefinable Magic, which was written and presented by me, Toby Haydoke, in a fashion that was, out of necessity, rather quick and probably rough around the edges, so forgive me. The music for this podcast has been specially composed by Dominic Glynn. Love to Lisa.